Well, it's good to be with you today on this uh, July 4th, pre-July 4th weekend and in the middle of summer with lots of people traveling. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. And I'm glad that you're here with us to study the Word. If you Do we have children's church today, Amy? Is it through grade... Anybody who is in VBS is is welcome to come down. Speaking of that, very grateful again, as Alex said, to all of our VBS workers, more than 40 uh, volunteers worked through the week. And if you got to come around here at any time during VBS, you were thoroughly blessed. What a fun time that was. The best VBS that I've experienced in my uh, times of pastoring as far as organization goes and just fun for the kids and and decorations. Just so thrilled to be part of that and all the follow-up that comes up next. John, of course, was uh, involved in picking up kids from our targeted neighborhoods and bringing them back home and establishing relationships with those parents. And so very intentional about the whole thing. And so we're very grateful to you, John, for all the work that you put in. And so uh, we're just thrilled to be part of the whole, what the Holy Spirit does amongst the kids and amongst our own uh, folks and then our parents that are uh, part of the, that family that we're going to extend our, our ministry to. I'd like you to turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's great to have the Joneses back, too, from their, uh, their uh, ministry trip with Liberty, and so we'll have them give us an update in the future. And so... A lot of fun things going on here. We're in the middle of a study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In particular, we're looking at 2nd um, Corinthians 2, and I've just titled that Insufficiency. This is really our second installment, and then as a subcategory, a subtitle, A Key to Being Useful to God. It was the end of the school year, and a kindergarten teacher was receiving gifts from her students. Uh, the uh, florist's son handed her a gift. She shook it. She held it overhead, said, uh, I bet I know what this is. It's flowers. That's right, the boy said, very pleased that she would guess. But how'd you know? Oh, just a wild guess, she said. Next student, uh, parents owned a candy shop. The teacher held the gift overhead, shook it, said, I bet I can guess what this is. It's a box of candy. He said, yes, it is. But how'd you know? And, and uh, she just said, oh, just a wild guess. Feeling very self-confident at this point. In her many years of dealing with students, she took up the next gift, which is from the son of the liquor store owner. Teacher held the package overhead. It was leaking a little bit. She touched a drop of the leakage to her tongue, uh, on her finger and put it to her tongue and says, is it wine? Uh, he said, uh, no. But with some excitement, uh, the teacher repeated the process, tasting a little bit bigger drop. Is it champagne, she asked. And he said, uh, no, very excited. Uh, teacher took one more big taste before declaring, I give up, what is it? With great excitement, the boy said, a puppy. As we noted several weeks ago, as we introduced this section, (laughs) you're just thinking about that, oh man, that's exactly what I did in my office, like, oh, and I told it anyways, you're rubbing off on me, Alex, you're rubbing off on me, so anyway, we had, uh, we've had a, a a number of things that we've looked at, we're back today, and our study has been off for two weeks, so I'm going to cover a little bit of the stuff we covered in the first initial um, time together. But we live in a passage, and we noticed this a couple of weeks ago. We live in a passage, uh, uh, and we live in a, a culture, if you will, that has an overgrown sense of human ability. I think you can see that really as you listen to interviews, sports uh, people, Hollywood. You know, it really doesn't matter, business people, uh, actors, and all kinds of stuff. My sons were, were talking about this with me um, last week, just talking about... Uh, pridefulness and how it comes across 
but overconfidence is really rampant in our society. I said we have an obese sense of overconfidence, and I think we really do. And it's really based, as we said last time, I think, on, on the self-esteem uh, uh, mantra that just kind of permeates child-rearing now. You know, you have to somehow affirm them, that little self as if they're not completely consumed with themselves from the second they come out of the womb. But we have to affirm that they're good at everything and excellent at everything and all that ridiculous stuff. And so they grow up and then they think that they are excellent at everything and they have this overgrown sense of self-confidence and uh, overgrown uh, overconfidence in thought processes and in opinions and in overconfidence in ability. And unfortunately, that overconfidence uh, can make its way into ministry. Paul dealt with it in 1 Corinthians a lot. A lot of overconfident people coming in and t- telling Paul what they think he needs to do and um, really affirming things that were not true. And so Paul, in his approach to the church in our more recent letter, where he, instead of just admonishing them and correcting the actions, where he's been revealing his heart to them and how he has come through different circumstances, he uses that approach here in order to teach them, and he tries to address this issue of overconfidence and and really sufficiency, feeling that, that you're very sufficient in the ministry. Let's read our passage together. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12. We're going to go all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, which seems to be uh, as though Paul's going to go back and forth with this as we get through this entire book, uh, this entire letter, rather. But I think this is the, the area where he really leads off with this ability, this this inadequacy that he understands that he has. And I think that this will ring through as you Read this with me, and you can just mark these in your Bible if you want to, where he is marking himself as inadequate. You'll hear it. Verse 12 says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, to the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And here it is, first one, and who is adequate for these things? Verse 17, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse 4, again, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Verse 6, again, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's stop right there. And we saw last time that in the faith, we can have some absolute confidence when it comes to facing death. When it comes to facing God, when it comes to divine judgment, when it comes to sins held against you, when it comes to answered prayer, uh, the Holy Spirit's presence, and many other things we talked about. So confidence, then, is not all bad. But we understand that none of those confidences that we just listed and the many more that we listed the first time we went through are based on our own power or on our own accomplishments. So 
as the right perspective there. We don't bring anything from the world, in other words, to the table that, we can, that can give us confidence in the ministry. That was just Paul, Paul's emphasis. The problem that he had inside the church it continues to be a problem in the church. So we don't, we don't have a lot of stuff that we can bring from the world, things that we've accomplished in education or whatever, to make us sufficient in the ministry. Paul had an interesting thing to say about confidence and self-sufficiency in Philippians 3.3, 3, where he says this, He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And and as Paul evaluated himself, there was always this overarching dependency and insufficiency that was so apparent. As Paul understood his life as a believer, he could say, when it comes to salvation and when it comes to the work God wants to do through us, there's no room for self-sufficiency. You remember his statement at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, where he said, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So even in his observation then, see, of the work ethic that he brought to uh, into this work in the ministry and, and the labor he brought to his ministry, he said, I labored more than all of them. Uh, there was this foundational dependency on the work of Christ that was always so clearly indicated. There was never uh, patting themselves on the back kind of thing where I did this and I accomplished this. Uh, even as, so as he looked at that, it's very, very important. And so it, it's so inspiring, I think, or it should be, that Paul, of all people, with all the education and the experience that he had, everything that he brought in his relationship to Christ that was so special that he had uh, with all of its uniqueness and, his, and the way he met Christ initially and, and with the wide influence that he had in the planting and nurturing of the New Testament church. In light of all of that, see, um, there's always this sincere, this utter reliance on Christ for all of it and this clear communication of that reality. There's never even a hint that I did this because I was uh, equipped out in the world to bring this to the table and I had very, very great confidence that I would be successful. Never a hint of that at all, see. Because sometimes it happens in Christian circles, people come into the church, perhaps into ministry with a background in some certain thing, and mistakenly we can assume that the self-confidence and, and confidence of a person that they may bring from the world in fleshly things somehow translates into confidence and effectiveness and success in God's eyes in spiritual things. And remember Paul, is in that passage we just read in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, who's adequate for these things? In other words, it's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? No one. No one in themselves is adequate for these things. You know, on down in chapter 3, verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. So it came through Christ, and we can have that confidence through Christ towards God that Christ is working in us. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything, again, very categorical, as coming from ourselves. And so when we bring these things in, we have to realize that, you know, effectiveness, success in God's eyes and spiritual things is not going to be found in confidence in our own ability. And even when others boasted, they promoted themselves around Paul, Paul could easily show the folly of it all. A passage that really shows Paul's attitude towards bring, bringing worldly confidence into uh, ministry, one that we'll look at more later, really found in 2 Corinthians 11. So Paul says this, he says, since many boast according to the flesh. So in other words, Paul says, you know, it's, it's a really a common thing. Unfortunately, it happens a lot. People boast according to the flesh that they're smart, they're educated, they're whatever. Uh, they've got a lot of experience in a lot of things. And so Paul says, since many boast according to the flesh, he goes, well, I will also. Um, he's kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek, verse 19, for you 
being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. In other words, you tolerate other foolish things like others that boast in the flesh, and, and so you should be okay with me doing it, except they really weren't because they consider Paul really a substandard pastor. So to make a point, Paul says, tolerate my foolishness for a moment. That's the whole point. If you will, tolerate my foolishness for a moment. I'll just be like the rest of the people you tolerate. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, anyone takes you advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. In other words, Paul says, we didn't do any of those things to you. So really, we are weak by comparison to the other people you tolerate. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. So again, he's just completely he's reassuring them, I'm not actually speaking what I believe to be true about myself. I'm speaking in foolishness that I could have some confidence in all of this. Uh, I am just as bold myself. So here I go, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, oft without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? In other words, see, if we're bringing worldly experiences to the table and being confident in them, Paul says, I have a lot to throw out there. But Paul says, I won't be so foolish as to think that my worldly experiences give me confidence. So he says, verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Again, he calls, as we see often with Paul, he calls on the Lord to verify. He's not going to lie in front of the Lord. He just calls on the Lord to verify. This is exactly how I feel. I boast of my weakness, not on what I brought to the table in my fleshly experience. See? And even in the work of the ministry where Paul experienced much of this hardship, he's not counting on that to be successful later or that that was the reason why he was successful then. He's like, if I have to boast, I'll boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Nassenes in order to seize me and my fellow, uh, my followers chartered a helicopter and picked me up. He was guarding the gate, and my ministry partner sent the limo for me. No. No boasting in his rights. No boasting what should have been his reputation. No, I'll boast in my weaknesses, Paul says. So what does he say? He says, I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Paul the Apostle, the powerful teacher, the planter of churches, escapes in a basket and slips off into the crowd, into the wilderness, to, so they didn't grab him. Kind of an ignominious exit, wouldn't you say? And what we find with Paul when he finishes these three chapters, 11, 12, and 13 of, uh, of 2 Corinthians, is over and over he comes back and he affirms from his heart and he shows from experiences that it's the ones who count themselves insufficient in the flesh 
and who regard themselves as inadequate to the work of the ministry, they are the ones God uses. And he says this over and over again. We find this continuously throughout the New Testament. And Paul was so firmly convinced over and against this self-confident esteem of the world that this is the true reality for the believer's effectiveness in ministry, that he continues to remind the churches of this in numerous ways and in different places, and we'll see this at length in our future studies. And you know, this is, this, is who, this is who God exalts, those who don't believe they have any ability. You know, and in my quiet time, I'm reading a Daniel, and I love Daniel, and I've taught it to you, but remember when, remember when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about the big tree, and then he, he sees all the things happening, the tree gets cut down, and all that, and if you're with John, maybe you're at that point in Daniel, maybe not. And so the tree gets cut down, and he calls Daniel, he says, hey, tell me what this means, and Daniel knows, he, he seeks the Lord, he knows what it means, and then he's like, uh, He's like, I'd rather not say, you know, maybe this, uh, maybe if this applied to your enemies, it'd be great. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, you know, just tell me, I know that the Lord reveals this to you. And so just give me the story. And so Daniel lays it out for him and says, you know, you're really arrogant and, you know, you've taken a lot on yourself. It's the Lord who's done this through you. And I would suggest that you kind of moderate your opinion and kind of bring yourself under the subjection of the Lord because he's the one who does it. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar listened to that like he listened to all of the other advisors. And, and she, a few months later, I think it says 12 months later, he's, he's walking along the wall and he looks at Babylon. What's he say? Isn't this Babylon that I built by my own power, my own might? And immediately um, he's reduced to uh, a beast and he has to dwell with the beast for seven periods of time. And, and what does the Lord say that the king has to learn? That the Lord is the one who's sovereign in all things and he puts whoever he wants on the throne, even the lowliest of men. Why? Because he's the one who accomplishes the work. So even in the private, even in the secular sector, the Lord is at work doing all these things. And all these people with all their pride, all these politicians with all these, you know, I did this, I did that, whatever. It's the Lord through them doing what he wishes and works out his story in, in the world. And so it's it's not foreign to us, uh, but here as a believer, we should certainly understand that. And we should, we should certainly avoid that overinflated uh, self-esteem and, and self-confidence and and the fact, thinking somehow that we have accomplished or can be super effective because of some certain thing we've accomplished in the private sector. Now, Second Corinthians twelve nine, very interesting uh, passage. One of my favorites here, just because um, Paul is just so clear. It's just amazing how how transparent he was. Uh, he talks about some trouble that he's had in the flesh and. Uh, how he asked the Lord to take it away from him, of course, because it inhibited what he felt and inhibited his ability to be effective, as effective in the ministry as he could have been. And, and he has said to me, so the Lord is speaking back to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. This is from the Lord to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When he understands that the Lord's perspective in this particular situation, as in all of his life, is my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness. Because that's the case, see, Paul says that he empowers the inadequate and makes sufficient the insufficient. So he says, most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Not begrudgingly, not, not under my breath, I'll mumble it, but openly, I'll admit it. And then he says, therefore, I'm well content 
with weakness. So he just applies it to a situation. I'm well content with weaknesses. I'm very satisfied with my lot in life, with insults, with distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So the bio then as he walks up to the stage would be, this is Paul who is constantly insulted, is in distress, has persecutions, and has difficulties. And in those things, he is strong because he's weak in the flesh. See, seems very opposite of what we want our bios to say, right? We want our bios to, to kind of um, tout how great we are, you know. This is Paul who, in the course of ministry, had been stoned and in the near-death experience was able to see heaven and experience some things that no one else had ever experienced. We're going to look at that. It's going to be marvelous when we get there. But instead of trying to let that wonderful experience become his introductory bio, things that his followers would say, well, Paul got exalted to the third heaven. He got to see things no one else has ever been able to see. Give Paul a big round of applause. Uh, Paul says, you know, I'm well content with being insufficient. Uh, Paul knew it was key to being useful to God. And that really, that's really the emphasis of these 12 verses we're going to look at. And I think you've already seen that as we've read through there now a couple of times. I think you can start to pick up that sense from Paul. And, and that really, uh, remember the, that the usefulness and the glory of ministry isn't going to be declaring that we're insufficient in and of itself. The glory here and the value and effectiveness will come if we understand Paul's heart here in his experience of insufficiency, see, then he sees the sufficiency of Jesus, which is discovered then in the reality of our weakness. In other words, the hard part is, beloved, you realizing and accepting that you are insufficient to the task of ministry and finding Christ to be sufficient. As you approach the ministry, you realize you are not capable of accomplishing anything of eternal value in that ministry that you do. Where If you're teaching little ones, if you're teaching adults, if you're ministering to students, if whatever it is you're doing, you're not capable of accomplishing anything of eternal value in and of yourself and of your own ability and education and background. It will have to be Christ at work in you or no thing good of any eternal value is going to be accomplished. That's the issue. Now, as we looked at this passage, I pointed out some handholds. You probably noticed them already. And it's going to mark our journey through these 12 verses. But let's look at the first one. And we're going to see Paul's weakness and insufficiency. And that he sees sufficient in Christ's leadership to overcome his insufficiency. The first stop is leadership. Sufficiency of Christ's leadership. This is verse 12 through 14. So look at 2 Corinthians 2.12 again, if you would. Uh, God's sufficiency in Christ's leadership through Paul's insufficiency. So he says this. Now, when it came to Troas, and we have to know a little bit about the background here in order for this to make sense to us, but you do because we have looked at this already at length in the previous, uh, previous letter. But he says, Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me, see, so we are in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Pause right there. Now, we've looked at, at this itinerary, and we're not going to do that again. We looked at the different letters he had to write and why. We won't do that again. But Paul knows that he's done all he can physically as a minister to deal with the rebellion, the disrespect, the sinfulness in this church in Corinth. He's, already, he, he's exhausted himself physically. He's done everything he knows to do. He's written all the letters he needs to write. He's done all the things he had to do. He had to send a severe letter, and Titus had to deliver it, and Titus hasn't returned. So there's the context, okay? So Paul goes looking for him. He arrives in Troas, and Paul describes it this way. Now, when I came to Troas, see what it says, for the gospel of Christ. So Paul knows he's insufficient to the task of bringing about any change in the church of Corinth apart from the Lord doing it. And so he's coming there with that in mind. He's looking for Titus. He's hoping to see him. And yet he has still followed Jesus in this foundational work of the ministry. So let's sum up some of the things we've seen. Uh, for, for an opportunity to witness, see, insufficiency will always be looking to Jesus for an opportunity to witness. 
Insufficiency is always going to look at Jesus for this plan of the propagation of the gospel. And that hasn't changed. So in your insufficiency, as you're doing the work of the ministry, realize that the plan for the gospel propagation is still in play. You may not know what to do else with your ministry that you're involved with. You may not do, want to do, want to do, you may not know what to do to make more effective whatever it is. You may have done all you can. You've exhausted yourself in the ministry. Understand that that leadership Christ has is sufficient. What is it? The Great Commission is still a command, and it just reaffirms Paul's faithfulness to his calling. And, and then we saw this next part of Paul's sufficiency in Christ's leadership, and here it is. And when a door was opened for me in the Lord. So Paul says, now I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. So he feels, he's upset, obviously. You know, the church seems to be in upheaval in Corinth, even though he's done everything he's supposed to do. And he's, he's done exactly, he's been exactly the kind of pastor he's supposed to be. He's, he's upset. He knows it's not working. Uh, you know, nothing's been changed, really. He sends a severe letter with Titus, and he doesn't know what's going on. And he says, and a door was opened for me in the Lord. That's the second stop on the sufficiency of Christ's leadership. Here it is. We saw that when you regard yourself as insufficient, you're just watching for the Lord to cause things to happen. If you've been on missions trips, uh, or, uh, even in this country, but certainly uh, uh, apart from this country, overseas, you know that the Lord is the one who causes things to open, doors to open. He's the one who creates an opportunity for the gospel. He's the one who's going to open up the door for something to happen. He's the only one who does that. And so you can just rely on that in your insufficiency. You know that the God is still in the habit of opening up doors for ministry. And if he doesn't open them, it's not going to happen. Paul done all he could physically to do, do in the ministry in Corinth. But Jesus was sufficient for Paul to continue to open doors of ministry. So he goes there and a door was open for me in the Lord. Now look at the first part of verse 13. So Paul's there, he's in Troas, he's looking for Titus, a door's open for ministry, and he says, I had no rest for my spirit. So it, underneath all of this, the door opening, Paul going for the gospel, underneath all of this, he has no rest. So now, this is not a surprise to Paul, and certainly no change from the norm for him. Who is weak without my being weak? Uh, along with all the physical things, is not the daily worry of all the churches always in my mind? Paul says, listen, this is... A, this is always on my heart. And I, this is, if you don't catch any other of these things about sufficiency and insufficiency, catch this one, okay? Principle three remains unchanged throughout the ages. Expect adversity and difficulty when you do the work of the Lord. And, and I think the, the main point is this. Being insufficient to the task of ministry, catch this, allows the Lord to give you his heart for ministry. And that heart will be a broken heart for the lost and a burdened heart for those who stray. In your insufficiency, it's not all about you and what you think is great, but instead, instead, it's the concern about ministry. And just, I'd like you to superimpose yourself now back into the ministry that you do. Do you have a broken heart for those who are lost? Do you, are, are, is your heart broken and burdened for those who stray, do you, do you, are you concerned about that? As you look around, if you know somebody's struggling, if they're not here because they're struggling, is your heart burdened for that? See, that's insufficiency acting in the power of Christ. He'll give you his heart. If it's all about you and you, what you think needs to be done and how you think it needs to be done and all that kind of stuff, see, um, you're, you're going to miss this. But if you're, if you're working in missions or if you're working in ministry and you've got a burdened heart for the lost, you've got a broken heart, for those who are straying, see, that's insufficiency being strengthened in Christ. That's the right motivation, then, to do the work that you're going to do, see. Christ's leadership will be sufficient to give you a burden for the kingdom if you're doing the work of the Lord in his power, see. 
And if you think about Paul, again, back in context, it must have been difficult for him to go and prepare sermons for the congregations at Troas, you know, when he's worrying about why Titus hasn't put in an appearance. But, you know, he obviously managed it, and, and this is kind of how it is most of the time in ministry. Things going on on every side. doesn't look like any of them is really amounting to much, right? Yet you got folks who get in the way of the ministry. you got folks who resist the ministry. you got folks who... Who, uh, who are always complaining about things, you got, and then you got ministry going on, it doesn't seem like people are listening or whatever. It's, it's always that way, okay? That, that's how it is. And, and so Paul, you know, concentrated on each task, knowing it was the Lord's sufficiency, that he would accomplish anything internal, he was going to open the doors. He had the gospel, had been given to Paul, Paul still knew it was still active. You know, so those are the things that are the base. That's where, that's where you're acting inside your insufficiency. God says, these things are still active. So Paul concentrated on those tasks, and, and may the Lord help us to concentrate on each of those things as they come. You know, just do the ministry you have. Let the Lord do, you know, be effective in the work. You rely on him and let those things accomplish, be accomplished that the Lord accomplishes. Now, look at the next section as we kind of transition into this cool um, part of this sufficiency. But taking my leave of them, see where we are? I went on to Macedonia, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, here's... Here's uh, number four. When you consider yourself insufficient to the task, when we know we're insufficient in ourselves for the ministry, it's easy to feel like a failure. And you know that. If you're really involved in ministry, you know this, okay? But Jesus is sufficient to redeem any circumstance. So in other words, beloved, there's no wasted journeys, there's no wasted heartache, there's no wasted difficulty, there's no wasted struggle. This, I think, in context with Paul, I think you can see this so clearly. As he... Over this course of time, there for 18 months later, writing letter after letter to this Corinthian church, so rebellious, so disrespectful, so, so unfocused on the things that really matter, so worldly, all of that kind of stuff. And it, it was easy for him to look from Troas and look back uh, and then move on to Macedonia, not find Titus, thinking everything must be terrible. Titus is probably in trouble, whatever. He's struggling with all of that, see? And so he leaves, he goes to Macedonia, and then he says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us uh, in triumph in Christ. And so... No wasted journeys, no wasted heartache, no wasted difficulty. He leaves Troas, his heart's burdened. There was good ministry there, but he moves on to Macedonia. He hasn't caught up with Titus. He's worried about the Corinthian church. He probably feels a bit like he failed. He goes there. He's looking for Titus. Acts 20 verse 2 tells us, though, that he was able to give, here was what it says in Acts 20 verse 2, give much, much exhortation to the churches there. So when he goes, Acts 20 verse 2 tells us that he went. And so the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea had much exhortation. So here's Paul, worried about Titus, he's worried about Corinth, he's really considering himself as just a failure. He goes to Troas, and the gospel is presented because he knows that's his job, and he just does it. And he goes to, uh, he goes to Troas, and the door is open for ministry there, and he moves on to Macedonia. So he's just thinking, you know, I'm just a huge failure. And what seems like failure for Paul on the Corinthian front is, is this triumph in Christ for the churches in Macedonia, for the church in, in Troas, and for the gospel. He didn't let his concerns and his insufficiency to accomplish anything else in Corinth hinder him from ministering in Macedonia. Wherever he w- was, he just did the ministry he was supposed to do. And, and the Lord using Paul's hardship and his troubled heart for his own glory and encouragement of the churches. So while he's there in Macedonia, he, he gave much exhortation to them. And so that's what he means by, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Always is a Greek adverb, pantote. In all times or forever. Here's, I think here's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see as, as he carries Paul along. If we're following his lead, 
then we'll always be led in triumph. Now, can I say just from a just from reality, it may not seem like it to you on a day-to-day basis. It may not feel like it, perhaps, as you do that ministry. It may seem very fruitless. It may seem like not much is going on, see? And you may feel a lot like Paul, that you were ineffective at Corinth, and, and then you go to Troas, and there's this uh, ministry opened up, and you move on to Macedonia because you're so troubled in your spirit, and, and, and th- everything's weighing down on you. And then Paul was able to say, listen, you know, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, a great illustration of that. The, the word is there twice, so I think we'll be able to see it more clearly. I'll leave this just for a second. Some of you are still writing. Hebrews seven twenty five says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, here's what we see. Just like uh, the word is used as an adjective, that's forever, to save forever those who draw near to God. And as in our passage, it's the adverb always. And so just like we can rely on our faithful God to save forever those that, that he saves, and just like we can be assured that he always lives to make intercession for those who are his, just like that, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, he always leads us in triumph. Same word, same idea. Okay? So if you're his, he's able to save you forever. Same word. If you're his, he always lives to make intercession for you. Same word. And if you're his, he always leads you in triumph. And that leads us in triumph is one verb in the Greek language. 3MDO, present active participle. So it's a verb. It's functioning, though, as an adjective. He leads us in triumph. That was typically used of a conqueror with reference to the vanquished. So here, though, and and this is cool how this is used, this reference is likely referring in context uh, to the Roman triumph. So on such occasion, when the Roman triumph would occur, the general's sons with various officers would ride in uh, around the chariot, around the chariot's wheels. And so those who are led aren't captives exposed to humiliation like a, a, a Roman triumph could be where you're kind of, you got all the slaves tied up uh, by their necks and they're coming behind. No, th- this idea there is that you're walking along with the conqueror as one of his officers or as his sons and, and you're displayed as glory and devoted subjects to him who leads us. So they have the honor of being led by the victor. So who's the victor? Well, that last part of the phrase, in Christ, right? Who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So the idea here is this. So just like as we saw in Hebrews 7.25, so he is able to save forever, that's our word, forever, those he saves, just like he's, he can be assured that he always, there's our word, lives to make intercession for us. So the idea, the Greek adverb, pantote, at all times, forever, see? So the idea is that Jesus leads us about here and there and displays us to the world, and Paul's thankful for this privilege of belonging to the ranks of the sovereign Lord. Now, in his own heart, as he looks at his experiences around him, it doesn't seem like he's being too effective anywhere. But it wasn't a surprise for Paul that in his flesh he couldn't accomplish anything because he already understood that his, he had insufficiency there and his only sufficiency was going to be in Christ. So Paul's just thankful for the privilege of belonging to the ranks of the sovereign Lord. The privilege of, catch it, marching behind the commander-in-chief of the universe in the parade as one of his lieutenants. So in your insufficiency in ministry, realize that you are going to always be led in Victory, the privilege of belonging to the victorious troops, the privilege of being under the kind of leadership, a leader who always leads to victory, and the privilege of being chosen by God to be a soldier of Christ and to bear his name, to wear his uniform, to serve the cause. We're insufficient to the task of ministry, but Christ is always more than sufficient, and so he gets glory for the successes in ministry. 
And ministry led by Christ is always accomplishing, catch it, what God desires to do. And as a footnote, it appears safe to say that this is where he met up with Titus. I think it's, as you see the uptick right here, I think he goes to Macedonia, and we understand that he did meet up with Titus, 2 Corinthians 7, 6 says that, so he waited for him at Troas, he worried about the church, about Titus, he had an open-door ministry, he, uh, he presented the gospel, he moved on to Macedonia, uh, Acts 20, verse 2 says he exhorted the churches there, so he's doing all this with all this in his mind, and he's waiting, and 2 Corinthians 7, 6, and we'll look at this more later, says this, but God, who comforts the depressed, who's he talking about? himself, right, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of whom? Titus, okay, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, so in other words, not only was it great to see Titus, it would have been so great if Titus is all beat up and he's like, they did not accept the letter, right, but anyway, he comes, and not only is he coming, but he brought comforting words, what was it, as he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more, Paul so again, Paul's done all he can do, and he sends the letter, and he's worried the whole time, but he's still doing the ministry, knowing he's not sufficient to do anything and accomplish anything, and along comes Titus and says, the Lord accomplished this, and they long for you, and they're mourning over their sin, and, and they have zeal for you, and he rejoiced even more. So he wasn't, he wasn't not rejoicing, he just, he was burdened, right? We are insufficient to the task of ministry. Christ is always more than sufficient. And so he gets glory for the successes in ministry. And ministry led by Christ is always accomplishing what God desires in his timing. See, as a pastor over 26 years, I don't know what the Lord's always doing in the church. It's not my business to even know that. I I don't know. I don't know what he's doing in, in a church corporately. I don't know what he's doing in individual hearts. I just know what I have to do. And as I look, I may see things that are discouraging to me. But I don't know what's going on. See, I just have to say, okay, Lord, you're sufficient. I've got a certain few things I'm supposed to do. An under rower, a a servant, a galley slave. And I'm supposed to give what, what is cooked up in the kitchen and just bring it to the people just like that without messing it up. I'm supposed to do those things, see? And whatever is happening out there, you're doing it. And then I just cling to this. I'm going to get a walk in the victorious procession with you because the Lord's always accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. See? One of my favorite illustrations of this marvelous truth is found in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, catch it, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Listen, beloved, do you wonder why Paul says to Timothy, be not many teachers for theirs is a greater condemnation? You know, when you're bringing the word of God, We had this marvelous passage that says, you know, for such as the words that go out from my mouth, they will return to me. Um, It will not return to me empty, but without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's why you have to be so careful when you're teaching the Word of God. You have to understand what does it mean? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? So what does it mean by what it says? So how did the first reader understand it? Not how do you take it. 
How does it appeal to your own experiences? What if you didn't exist? What would it mean then that that's what it means, whatever it meant to the first reader, that's what you deliver, okay? And then you trust the Holy Spirit to make application, and sometimes you help make application. For the most part, you deliver the Word of God because the Word of God goes out, and it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter which I said it. Mark this, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Now, we understand that that's future Israel. We will understand, too, that the... the uh, the attributes that we see of the Lord there and his desire for how his word is to be accomplished are still the same and they don't change, see? So who accomplishes all of that? Who's doing all the leading here? The Lord is, right? Who has the word that realizes the intended result of every word the Lord does? Who said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Matthew 16, 18. Jesus did. So if you're with him, you know you're not building the church. Who is? He's building the church and you're part of that triumph because you're doing your part as you serve with the, with the spiritual gifts the Lord has given you in proportion to your faith. So here's the deal. We don't have to win every little struggle along the way. It's enough to know that we'll be triumphant at the end. It's enough to know that we'll be there as part of the marching army, part of the lieutenants of Christ in the day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Right? And who gets the glory? The Lord does. See? And he doesn't waste any hardship. And he doesn't waste any tears. And he knows all the struggles. And he knows the, the, the discouragement that comes along. And you just keep on looking for open doors. And you just keep on giving out the gospel. And you keep on doing the job you're supposed to do in that little ministry the Lord has given you. And you just trust him to be sufficient because you're not. See? He knows all of the difficulties. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. But as for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. And when the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindnesses of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. Listen, you, we're no more, according to the Lord in the Lord's sight, no more, no more sufficient in ourselves than a flower of the field that's there today and gone tomorrow. And that's not a reason to be depressed. It's a reason to have the right perspective on your own ability and realize that anything of eternal value is only going to come through you acknowledging your insufficiency because you recognize it and then letting Christ go to work through you. See, And that's not something out there just esoteric. You know, I don't know how to grab a hold of that. Listen, that's reality. When you do the ministry and you give his word out, it's him that's going to go to work through the Holy Spirit. I don't trust that my creative sentences in some cool illustration or a funny uh, you know, video or whatever somehow is going to appeal to you. It's the word of God resonating by the, in the Holy Spirit in you It'll go to work. And I don't get any credit for that. And, I, and I've told you this before. I don't want you to walk out the door thinking, wow, he did a really good job. I don't want you to think about me at all. I want you to think about how amazing the Lord is and then the principles you learned and put them to work, see. Because you're my letter. Written by the Holy Spirit. Just like I am. You guys who do ministry to me, I'm your letter. You minister to me, you speak to me, and I go out and live that out. That's, that's how that works, see. 
So Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. I love that. Insufficiency is the key to being useful to God. We're not relying on our own planning, on our own estimation of whether what we did amounted to anything. God always leads in triumph those who love and rely on Christ. And not only that, but catch this. And this, this is one of my favorite passages in all these, these Corinthian letters. It manifests through us. This, is, this imagery is just amazing to me. Manifests through us the sweet aroma It doesn't seem to be the reality of our life, does it? Manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Those are such great words. And they find their context in the same victorious processional. So here you have, you have the, the, the leader coming in who's led in victory. And all these people who are, are the lieutenants and the, and, the, and the sons of the general and all that, they're all walking along. And there's this huge crowd and everybody's so excited and there's this victorious processional, and along with the conqueror and all who serve in his army are those that bear the incense and those who have the flowers, and so everyone can see the celebration and they can smell this marvelous, wonderful fragrance of victory. It is, it is, a, it is a marvelous, marvelous imagery. You know, some of you who know me know that I like to plant around my house, and, and this year I planted gardenia. Maybe you know that. It's a southern flower. But it'll grow in Virginia if you protect it. That's one of the most beautiful fragrances you've ever, you can ever smell. That and lilac, right? And we, I have both of those around my house. You smell that, you're just like, oh my word. Just to quote a book, I mean, this is the fragrance God gave to drown out the stink of a cursed earth. This is from the Lord to us. I remember in Florida, we had a, a little lady, she'd been a widow for years and years and years. And she lived not too far from the church in a little neighborhood. And um, I would go see her from time to time. She's such an encouragement. You know, I'd go to encourage her, and I'd come away encouraged. She's just like that, that kind of person. She's with the Lord now. I've been with the Lord many years. But in her front yard was this gardenia bush. And I kid you not, it was from that rail to here. It was that big. And it was probably about that tall. And so during certain times of the year, when I pulled down her, her street was dirt. And I pulled down her street, and this is, uh, it would bloom in the, what we would consider wintertime here, but it was, uh, it, would, it was in December, so I had the windows down. I wouldn't have to get very close to her house. If it was blooming, I could smell it. I mean, it was just amazing to walk in her yard because her gate was right next to it. It's like, oh, my word. That's the kind of, that's the kind of thing as you think about this, this victorious celebration. So, you know, everybody's walking along. The king has conquered, and we don't seem like we've done much, but we get, we get people cheering. I mean, great cloud of witnesses, all that. And then this, this uh, smell of the fragrance of victory. And it's a marvelous imagery. You know, in, in John chapter 12, verse 3, is a great illustration of that. Remember this? Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And, and when she did this, everyone knew what a beautiful thing Mary had done from the fragrance and what great love she had for her Savior to sacrifice such a very costly thing uh, for him, right? Of course, he had some people complaining, why didn't you give it to the poor or whatever? And Jesus said, wherever, wherever the story is told, the story of her great love for me uh, will be told. And she did this really in pre- prepare for my burial. Um, she was anointing me with this to prepare for my burial. And so Ephesians 5, 1 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering, catch it, a sacrifice to God as a what? 
fragrant aroma. Beloved, did you know Christ's sacrifice on the cross was one of love? You know this. And, and it calls to mind the Old Testament altar and the tabernacle and later the temple. Christ's offering of love was a fragrant aroma to God, just like the sacrificial lamb, the Lord says, was a, was a, was a fragrant aroma to him because he understood the hearts of the people who came truly to worship him were doing that. And so to him, that was the smell of love. And so Scripture says, when we walk in sacrificial love for one another, that's also a fragrant aroma to God. God, it's like a flower, it's like a gardenia, it's like whatever the, the, the incense was that was, was uh, everyone who along the parade route could smell. It's like that, see? Philippians 4.18, but I've received everything in full. I have abundance. I'm amply supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The generous gift from the Philippian church to support Paul was like a wonderful fragrance to Paul. So you get the picture, right? I mean, gardenia, lilac, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so there's a sweet aroma, catch it, catch it coming from you, because the end of 14 uh, confirms that. Okay, look back there. Those who find their sufficiency in Jesus are made to be the very fragrance of Christ. Now, verse 16 says the perception of that fragrance can be quite different. We're going to see that next time, right? It's still the fragrance of Christ, but to the, to the lost, what is it? It's the fragrance of death to them because they're under curse. But it's, it doesn't change the fragrance. It's perception of the fragrance, right? I'm sure people think, some people smell gardenias and think, oh, that stinks. But the, the, the amazing thing is that, the reality of it is that if you're about making the ministry about what Jesus can do, see, God will make you the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere you go. And the key thought here is that God, in, in, in his wonderful and catch it, condescending mercy, has chosen to manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ everywhere through you and me. That is just amazing to me. The knowledge of Jesus, if foremost, the gospel, Paul said, you know, Romans 10, 14, he says this. He says, how will they call on him? in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're said, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or the good things. God makes those who make it all about Jesus a beautiful aroma. God makes those who make it all about Jesus, as it were, beautiful feet. Titus 2 says that those who work hard as employees adorn the gospel. Somehow, the Lord uses the feebleness of our own effort where he has to take control. He uses those things to make beautiful feet, to make a beautiful aroma, to adorn the gospel. This is how God views those who know they are insufficient to the task of ministry. By itself, that should be an attraction to you. By itself. That you get to, in your insufficiency, be the fragrance of Christ to the world. That's how he views those who are insufficient to the task. And so Jesus empowers us, and he leads us to victory through those who are powerless. See, Those who know that when they're weak, then they're strong. He makes them a wonderful aroma of Christ. He views their commitment to the gospel as beautiful. He, tells, he lets them adorn an already marvelous gospel. See? So just grab onto those thoughts as we close, okay? They're just so hard to fathom. When God planned to manifest the knowledge of Christ in every place and send forth a sweet aroma, the fragrance of the gospel, he planned to do it through us. Do we deserve that honor? No. And Paul, beloved, Paul never got over that, okay? He never got over the fact that he got the honor of presenting the gospel to people. All the ministries from God, 
All the results are from God. And he works it all out in his own timing and for his own glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God. Who rec- All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We receive reconciliation and we're given the ministry of reconciliation as if later it says that we were making appeal to you through Christ. We're Christ ambassadors. We get to be that. The fragrance of Christ, beautiful feet of the gospel, adorning the gospel. We get, to, we get the ministry of reconciliation, and we plead to you as if Christ were here himself in Christ's place. Be reconciled to God through Christ. See? I planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth, so then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters anything but God who causes the growth. Paul never got over that, and neither should we. As long as it's our acknowledged insufficiency, experience in Jesus' sufficiency, and it's not about our own definition of success, or our own definition of popularity, or our own ambitions, or our own reputation, and our overgrown sense of self-sufficiency and human ability, see, but just the reputation of Jesus and his glory, then we can be useful to God, see. And perhaps we can hear at the end of this earthly life, well done, good and faithful servant, you were faithful in a little bit, I'll put you in charge of a lot, Matthew 25, 23. Well done, my child. I made your feet beautiful because you took the gospel of peace to people. Well done, child. You adorned my gospel by your hard work and your hard labor. You made me look even more attractive because you did those things. Well done, child. You were the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ in every place. Man, we want, we want to aspire to that, right? When we walk out of the room, do you want somebody to say, man, I, I smell Jesus. That's a marvelous thing to aspire to. Let's pray. Would you be dismissed? Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for uh, the marvelous nature of this passage, particularly, and how overwhelming it is for me to hear that you've made us the, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ in every place, that you cause us always to walk in victory when we're relying on your strength. Wow. What an encouragement that is in the middle of sometimes discouraging, sometimes encouraging ministry that regardless, as long as we're relying on your strength and doing what you say, that we get to walk in victory and your word goes out and it accomplishes exactly what you intended it to accomplish and doesn't come back to you empty. So Lord, help us to just reevaluate very simply how we do our ministry and why. And we're, the Bible is full of these types of admonitions and reminders and again, uh, so helpful to us. As we reach the end of our earthly life, we certainly want to be Uh, acknowledged by Christ, say, you were the fragrance of the knowledge of me everywhere. And Lord, we're not going to accomplish that by pulling it out of our hat. We're going to do it because we're in the Word every day. We see what you expect from us. We get the encouragement and the praise and the the worship and all that. And our thoughts being uh, controlled by uh, an informed conscience are witnessing about you. And we're not quenching the Holy Spirit by allowing worldly actions and deeds to dominate us. Instead, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we're doing these things. And then walking along psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in our heart to the Lord, you know, encouraging one another, exhorting all of that. That's the kind of people we want to be, the kind of people I want to be. And so, Lord, I pray you grant these requests because these are certainly your will. And so we're praying along with your will, so we desire your will to be done and your kingdom to come, just like it's done in heaven done here by the people who call in your name, empowered by your power, with no sufficiency in ourselves. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.